You are listening to Youth Voice Alaska, and we welcome you to our new series, The Art of Being You. This is a production of the StoryWorks Alaska Youth Team, or Say It. I'm Joshua. And I'm Bianca. We're your hosts today for our third episode. In our previous series, we shared stories of moving on, finding family, and seeking help. In this series, we will listen to stories about what we are made of, how we perceive the world and ourselves, and what lessons have helped us find our identities. Our third episode is about change. These stories show changes in mindset, changes of heart, changes in life, and changing thanks to a life lesson. Our first story is from Asa, where he shares his experience with comedy and telling jokes. Okay, so most people don't find the thing that they want to do or their big defining moment until, you know, some people don't find out until after college or at the end of high school. I found mine in between sixth and seventh grade at that like weird summer. Like it was like, oh, you're no longer in elementary school, but oh, you're not a middle schooler either. You don't know where you are. And I remember it like my discovery, like it was, you know, yesterday. It was a random Saturday night. I was sitting in my basement watching some mindless sitcom, Parks and Recreation, something like that. And I walk upstairs. My parents have my aunt and uncle over. And they're watching this comedian, Jim Gaffigan. The room was radiating this weird blue aura from the TV. It was coming like, only thing I could focus on at that moment was the TV. And Jim Gaffigan, he's a comedian who works clean. He uh, doesn't swear, doesn't cuss, doesn't say anything like that. Which is, I know a lot of you know me, and I try to swear as little as possible. And that doesn't help a lot of the time. (laughs) But that at that moment, at that age, he was the perfect comedian to introduce me to this whole new world of jokes, setup, writing, all of this like setup that I've been doing came from this one moment in my entire life. Like, this was the big thing. After that moment, I became so engrossed in stand-up comedy that I learned how to write, read. I learned like all I could already read, of course. I was like a sixth grader. I wasn't like mindless, but. <laughs> I learned how to like set up jokes, all this. But what I didn't realize is that it's a faux pas to tell other people's jokes. And while that may seem fairly normal, not oh, normal not to tell other people's jokes, sixth grade Asa wasn't the smartest individual. And I don't know if you guys have ever told a joke and have it flatlined to middle schoolers, but it's pretty heartbreaking. Like when I entered seventh grade, I would just start telling people these jokes that I heard from like John Mulaney or Nikki Glaser. And, you know, they all laugh at them until they realize that it's somebody else's joke. Like, it just doesn't go over too well once they find out, oh, (laughs) this happened there. Like, there's people that spend their whole lives telling comedy and have it ruined by one other person because they can't tell that joke anymore. Like, all these big moments stemmed out of this one thing. Over the years, like, now that I'm in high school, like, I found out like, how I like to tell jokes. I like to tell stories. And the way I tell stories is I start with like, something random that happened, and then I branch, and then you come back. But essentially, my entire life has just came from like, these little moments, and I spur back into it. Like I start drifting, and I get back into it. Like I'm in a little side rant right now. But essentially, like, oof, I'm trying to find a good way to like, voice this. Telling 
other people's jokes to me didn't seem bad because I was sharing what other people thought and how they think. And I was like, oh, this is how I've started thinking. And it's made me extremely critical of my like surroundings. I, I can find 20 things weird about this entire situation right now. I mean, I'm sure all of you can, but it's not that difficult. But it's just made me a completely different person. But over the years, I've stopped telling other people's jokes. I tell my jokes now. I'm, I'm sure you're all very enthused about that, I know. <laughs> but you know, now that I'm not telling other people's jokes, I still have punchlines miss a couple times. And um, I'm Asa. Thank you. Thank you, Asa, for sharing how you grew and found your own way to tell jokes and stories. Our next storyteller is Niha, who shares their story about a canoe trip that doesn't go as planned. Uh, my story is about this paradigm shift that I had. Um, it was over the summer uh, this year. It was in Maryland. So me and about 25 of my friends um, decided to go on a canoe trip because we, we all graduated from this camp about two years ago. So now it's kind of a tradition to go on a 10-day backpacking trip through the Appalachian Mountains. And we spend like three days in the middle portion um, on the water. So it's a beautiful day. The sky is perfectly blue. There's no clouds in the sky. The water's as still as glass, and we're all having a good time. Everything's perfect. Me and my friends are laughing. It's all great. So we start canoeing, and my canoe partner's yelling at me, and he's telling me, like, I'm not strong enough. I'm not going fast enough. So I'm like, okay, I'm not listening to you. I'm, I'm just going to block you out. And I space out for 30 minutes. And then when I finally, like, come back into reality, I remember him yelling my name, and then I look around me. All the boats are in one line and it's raining out. I look up, the sky's really, really dark gray, and the water is aggressively ri rippling. So I'm like, okay, I clearly missed a few things here. Um, and then it hits me. We're in the middle of a rainstorm, and this is really dangerous because in Maryland, rainstorms turn into thunderstorms, which turn into lightning storms, and you're not allowed to be on the water when it's, when it's like lightninging out because if you get struck, you're all dead. So everyone in my group is now panicking because they're like, oh, sh like we got to get off the water. Um, the problem with though is this though, is that like riverbanks are like, they're not shallow, like they're not, they, they're steep and they're aggressive. So it's like the ground, a 90 degree angle, and then the water. And if you're pulling out your canoes, you need like shallow land because you're picking up your boats. So we're like, okay, we got to find like a good spot. So we're like on the water, we're like panicking. All the college kids with us are like making calls to people. They're like, okay, we're gonna get a bus. We're gonna get out of this, but we have to get off the river. So we find this like patch of gravel and it's like, it's not ideal, but it's not, it's the best we've had. And we've been on the water for too long. So we all like, we drag up our boats and um, the oldest kids tell us to like take off our life jackets and squat on them to like low, like to minimize our surface area so we like don't get struck by lightning. So we're like, we're sitting there. I remember Ellery, she was crying and she was like having a panic attack. She thought she was gonna die that day. I remember Sebastian, who was like one of the loudest kids, just wasn't speaking. He was like, he was terrified. And I was like, dog, what's happening? Like everything was so drastically different from like 
the 45 minutes ago that I remember. And then I started laughing. It, it was the funniest thing to me. I was like, like this, this isn't real. So everyone looks at me like I'm crazy and I'm like, yeah, this, this isn't a good time, but I, I don't know why you're sad about it. And then a few people started laughing. And then eventually almost every single one of us was laughing because I was like, this is so stupid. We're squatting on life jackets in the middle of nowhere, like miserable and freezing in our bathing suits. And yeah, it sucks, but you know, there's nothing we can do about it. So we're, you're either gonna have like a good time or you're gonna be miserable. And I don't wanna be miserable right now. Um, which kind of changed the way that I like see myself in almost every situation now. Cause it's like, yeah, the situation, it could be bad, but if there's something that I can do to like make it better for myself and everyone else around me, then I feel like that's kind of what I want to do, you know? So kind of had that shift. Thank you. Thank you, Neha, for sharing your story on how you helped make bad situations a little bit better. Next, we have Miles with his story about overcoming inner obstacles in his time as a Little League player. So my story takes place last year during Little League. So it was the semifinals. We were going up against the Rockies, and I was scheduled to pitch the first two innings, and then someone would pitch last inning. So I'm like, okay, easy. Go out there, pitch two innings. Just allow the least amount of runs as I can because that's an advantage. And the first inning went by good. I only allowed two runs. We scored three, so we were up by one. And then the second inning, uh, that was the rough part because it was my last inning, and I always kind of get nervous in my last inning and usually don't do as well, but I was really feeling confident this time because I was like, last inning, I'm just going to go out there. And so first batter, I strike out easily. Second batter, I do the same thing, except he hits a foul ball, and if you've ever been a pitcher, you know that feeling where the sound of the bat, it, it's like the worst feeling in the world, but when you turn around and see it went foul, you just like, it's, it's, it's a relief. So the third batter, one of the best players in the league, he's their leadoff batter, he's a five-tool player, and I had somehow struck him out the first inning. And so I kind of just kicked the dirt a little, just kind of eased my mind. And the first pitch, I was gonna throw, uh, I was just gonna throw a pitch right inside and hope he misses it. The second I threw it, I knew I'd made a mistake and it went right down the uh, middle and he just smacked it to the outfield. And I remember looking and hoping it was gonna go foul and it just inches away from the foul line and it went fair. And so now there's someone on second. And I'm getting worried and I know he's gonna steal third so I'm prepared for that. I throw it, exactly what happens. He steals third. And I'm getting really, really worried now because we have someone on third and one mistake and it's tied. And I made a mistake. I let a single by and the run goes in and now we're tied. And I just like, I was really, really getting into my head and I just kind of had like a meltdown on the mound and I was not throwing what I wanted to throw and kept allowing more and more hits. And I ended up, uh, we lost the lead. It was now five to three instead of two to three like it was at the beginning. 
and so I remember going back to the mound, uh, back to the dugout, I mean, and I was just, like, I felt defeated, and we were, we started to kind of rally, and we got a guy on first with two outs, and I'm starting to feel a little bit hopeful. I'm in the hole, so I go to grab my helmet. I remember just turning around seeing uh, the, our batter just ground out to third, and I knew that was the last out. And so I just kind of put my helmet back. I'm like, that's it, like season's over. And so one thing I learned from that is to mature better as a player emotionally and not get in my head as much and just just doing things, like little things like, like kicking the dirt or just kind of taking a minute in between pitches and uh, now I play for that team. Thank you, Miles, for showing us how you matured as a player by learning how to better control your emotions. Our next story is from Claire, who tells her a very detailed and elaborate story about her internal development that is attributed to the band Death Grips during quarantine. All right, I'm eating up seconds here by being nervous, so let's get on with it. All right. So during quarantine this year, I was watching a lot of YouTube. And specifically, I was watching this guy YouTube had recommended to me, uh, the music reviewer and meme man, Anthony Fantano. And like I said, Fantano's kind of a meme man, but he's excellent at what he does, which is review music. And he has like an insular and sort of cult-like fan base and his fan base, basically, they bandy around all of these inside jokes in his comments section. They toss these inside jokes around like a beach ball. And uh, like I said, I was very taken with Fantano's music knowledge and the knowledge that people displayed in his comments section. So one of the inside jokes that his fans would toss about underneath his videos was about this band Death Grips, which was apparently uh, Fantano's favorite band and also simultaneously God's gift to mankind. So this is what the people in the comments said about Death Grips. They were three enigmatic geniuses from Sacramento. First of all, Zach Hill, drummer and producer extraordinaire, a god among men, his long Jesus-like hair clotted into strands by the sweat of his brow, his tendons cracking and popping like electric wires as he aggressively beat his drums. And secondly, Andy Morin, producer and engineer king. Sometimes his hair is green, his stony death glares hidden behind mirrored sunglasses, the man of mystery with an aura of dread over him. And finally, the third most king-like and most lordly member of the band, MC Ride, the rapper, lyricist, vocalist, his body covered in occult tattoos, cryptic strings of glyphs and symbols that he displays because he's constantly shirtless. His head bald and gleaming under the stage lights, his beard large and thick. He stands astride the stage, yelling out his disjointed raps, whipping the audience into a frenzy. Two white guys who are Zach and Andy, and one black guy who is MC Ride, that is Death Grips. So, yeah, 
I was impressed. And I was like, I got to check these guys out. Um, I need, basically, I need to join this religion that is being a Death Grips fan. So I went on to Apple Music. I loaded up Death Grips' most famous uh, and critically acclaimed album, The Money Store, put on my big old headphones and got ready for a mind-blowing, life-changing, paradigm-shifting experience. And from the first couple seconds of the album, I hated it. <laughs> Absolutely. It was the worst thing I'd ever heard. Zach Hill's drums, he was just pounding relentlessly these complex, these frenzied beat patterns. It was insane. These were not the drums of sanity. These were the drums of insanity. And secondly, Andy's and Zach's synths and loops and layers and samples, they were cooking, they were steaming like hot garbage in a dumpster, rotting and releasing fumes under the Sacramento sun, percolating up into my ears and tantalizing my brain in like a bad way with how disgusting they were. And finally, on top of that, MC Ride is just yelling, yelling his head off, like throat-ripping, vocal cord fraying, just full-throated yells, and his lyrics didn't make any sense. Um, he was basically like splattering word cubism at the wall. Like, I could feel my brain building new neural pathways to try and comprehend what he was saying, and I could not. So he was saying stuff like, I've got the DNA of gothic lemons, fold it six times out of 11, makes you want to break in the Apple store, doop-de-doop-de-doo. Or at least I think that's what he said. It was hard to tell. Um, yeah, so I hated it. And the album put me in physical pain. Like, really. And this was somewhat of a revelation for me because over the past few months, I'd spent a lot of time sitting at my computer, not really feeling much of anything, just consuming content mindlessly like a cow grazing in a field. Um, and this physical pain that the album put me in, it was something new. And I was so bored, I had nothing better to do with my time. I was like, what the heck? I'll listen to this over and over again. And so I did. For several months, I played the money store on repeat all the time, and I suddenly began, like, eventually grudgingly appreciating the album because it was so ugly. It was so fantastically ugly. It was like a gargoyle, like a particularly hideous gargoyle on the roof of a church with, like, bat wings and, like, scummy algae water spewing out of its mouth from the drain pipe, and you wonder, like... How could somebody come up with something this ugly? It was honestly impressive. And then also Death Grips, three very talented musicians, guys who had to learn, you know, the rules of music in order to break them. The album's a technical achievement. I didn't really care about that part. I was just fascinated by the ugliness. So I kept listening and the album pureed my brain into a sort of slurry. And finally, my brain was so smooth, was such a like paste, you could have stuck a straw in my head and slurped my brain right out like a smoothie. And at that point, I began to love the album. <laughs> like every single song's a banger, it's a slapper, you know? And 
It just filled me with this white hot, this incandescent rage burning through me, and it was a revelation to feel anything, and especially to feel something so strongly. And I had to wonder, what's wrong with me? Why am I enjoying this objectively hideous piece of music? So to try and find some answers, I went on to Reddit. Don't do that. Don't go to Reddit to find answers. But I did. I logged on to the Death Grips subreddit, the most active Death Grips community this side of 4chan. Um, and instead of answers, I found a lot of memes. I found so many memes that I had to wonder, like, were people so out of touch with their feelings, you know, the strong emotions brought on by the power of this music that they have to secrete memes as a defense mechanism, like how if you touch certain kinds of caterpillar, they secrete a bitter substance to keep you from eating them. So I was disappointed to see that Death Crips fans as a whole were not really in touch with their, their emotions. And also, I saw a lot of lonely, a lot of bitter edgelords who were just like blaming the world for their problems, blaming the world for their isolation, their only tenuous connection to, to truly living was the music of this ridiculous band. And that hit me kind of hard, honestly, because that was how I was living at that point. And seeing all of the negativity that these people who were basically like, like me were spewing all over the internet, it made me think, hey, maybe like this attitude of bitterness and hopelessness isn't such a great thing after all. But I didn't know what to do with that revelation, except listen to more death grips. So that's what I did. Uh, I loaded up their 2016 album, Bottomless Pit, and got ready to get enraged again. But instead of enraged, I just felt what's quite possibly the worst musically-induced pain anyone has ever felt, ever. So in a moment of desperation, I grabbed my headphones, grabbed my phone, ran out of the house and started walking down the street listening to the album still to try and see if that would help with the pain because truly it was incredible. It was like my blood was acid. It was corroding my veins. It's going to leach out of my body. It's like my blood's carbonated, like somebody shook it up and it's going to burst out of my body in some kind of a disgusting blood fountain all over the sidewalk. Like, it was just horrible. So I was walking down the street in this sort of distress, and pretty soon I began walking to the beat you know, Zach Hill's going crazy on his drums, and I was into it. I was like, hmm, yeah, yep, this is the stuff. And Andy's synthesizers, they were like a bottle of Coca-Cola that somebody's abandoned on the sidewalk, and the, the liquid inside is turned in, into a sort of sludge that pours like syrup. The synthesizers were like a gross dirt syrup in my ears. And finally, on top of it, MC Ride was going blub, 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 blub with total and complete conviction. And I was into it. And so I walked, and pretty soon I'd walked into the woods near my house. And while I was in the woods, the pain, it grew even more intense. 
And I was like, oh no, what's going to happen? I'm either going to keel over right here in the woods and somebody's going to find my body or I can dance. I can dance this pain out of my body. I got to move somehow. I got to move it out. So I began to dance. I danced my heart out out there in the woods. And that, that was a character uh, development for me because usually when I listen to music, I sort of hunch over and furrow my brow to show that I'm concentrating. But I physically couldn't not dance. So I danced like crazy for the full 40-minute runtime of the album out in the woods. And then when it was over, I walked home all sweaty, covered in leaves and dirt, and opened the door to my house. My parents said, how was your walk? And I said, it was fine. The end. Thank you, Claire, for sharing your experience with music and the internet during quarantine. These stories have shown us that change can be many different things. From internal transformations to external changes outside of our control, change can be uncertain. But learning how to deal and cope with change is the real lesson here. Thank you for listening to Say It's third installment of The Art of Being You. I'm Bianca. And I'm Joshua. And thank you to StoryWorks Alaska for making this project possible. We'd also like to thank partner teachers, Ms. Steffel and Mrs. Kiddo from West High School, and Joe Sykes and Mindy Vogel from Polaris for giving our storytellers the opportunity to share their stories. And finally, thank you to our storytellers, Asa, Neha, Miles, and Claire.